You're listening to the Bass Lessons Melbourne podcast, episode 20, Michael League. This is Craig here from Bass Lessons Melbourne and today I'm joined by none other than um, Mike League from Snarky Puppy. So Michael, thanks for taking the time out yeah, to talk to me. My I pleasure. I really appreciate it. Obviously we're here in the Melbourne Recital Centre for your two shows, which is pretty exciting. I've seen yeah. you a couple of times in Melbourne and each time the shows got bigger and bigger and bigger. I think the first time was a kind of, it was like a tent, it was the Melbourne Festival. Oh wow. And then next time was obviously two shows at the Forum, mm. which is pretty epic. And then, and then tonight, so... The shows have got bigger, the audiences have got bigger, have got bigger. Um, how, you know, is there, is there something you can maybe attribute your growth as a band to from, you know, it's, it's over a 10 year journey, isn't it? 14. 14, mm. yeah, 14 years. So starting out hitting the clubs or the festival scene to try and build up an audience. And then the internet was that a bit of a, the YouTube thing, was that a bit of a tipping point? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we didn't have any audience really before our stuff was on the internet. I mean, we were touring for years, maybe four years, three three or four years of pretty consistent touring, just like slowly, slowly building audiences. I mean, I'm talking like 12 people to 20 people to 40 yeah. people, you know, each time through. Um, and then we put... Uh, a live DVD thing on YouTube of us recording in the studio with an audience, yep. which became kind of a format that we've employed quite a bit. Um, I think most people that have discovered us discovered us that way. Yeah, I did. I got a I got a link yeah. for um, tell your friends, and I was like, this is this is different. This is new. Right. Yeah. yeah. And of course, ironically, it's like that was through YouTube, which is like kind of the of the streaming companies. It's kind of like the worst offender, yeah. you know. But yeah. it was it was integral to our development of an audience internationally yeah. and domestically. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, was, was the was the Grammy um, a tipping point or was it more an acknowledgement of where you were and it just kind of kept going from there? Yeah, I don't think there was ever like a tipping point. You sure. know, I think every moment that could be thought of as a tipping point was just a natural culmination of the things that preceded it. Yeah. So, the Grammy was a huge surprise and it did a lot for us in terms of um, people kind of respecting us or because apparently you need awards for that, <laughs> for that to happen, you know, which sounds funny, but it's really true. You know, yeah. it's like and, and or for people to pay you what you think you deserve, or, sure, yeah. you know, um, it's kind of unfortunate that it takes awards to do that. But at the same time, it was like we're not going to hand it back, you know, because, because it, 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 who has it? Do you have it? You all got, everybody got one, right? No, or they, they only make two. Well, it depends on the category, okay. but you know, in most cases they make two, they make one for the producer and one for the artist. 
Um, Sorry, I just popped in my head. No, no, <laughs> totally normal. Um, yeah, but you know the way that I look about at, at those awards, it's kind of like a for me, it's like a, a way of saying thank you to the guys sure. in the band for for being along for the journey and for them to be able to say that they were a part of this Grammy Award winning kind yeah. of moment is like kind of like makes all of the years of grinding yeah. and kind of suffering <laughs> worth it, you know? Um, and it also leads to increased comfort on the road. You know, we can, sure. we make more money, which means that we don't have to put five guys in a hotel room anymore. We don't have to sleep on couches anymore. We don't have to do yeah. three, three flight journeys somewhere, yeah, yeah. you know, like we just used to do everything the way you would do it if you were a poor college student. Yeah. So what, I mean, what was the thing that, that kept you going through all, I mean, for for a band to be around for fourteen years, full stop is is something. But to have such a such a large ensemble and go through that slog mm -hmm. of trying to make it work, what what was it that made you, you know, and say just I just got to do this? Was it just that I just got to do this, or I think you just you kind of pull from the moments where things felt great. Mm. You know, I think you just look at it like a relationship. Like if you're in a fight with your girlfriend. You know, the the last thing you should be doing is dwelling on the, all the things that drive you crazy, right? The things that you the thing you should be doing probably is recalling all of like the best moments, and then you kind of use that to weigh up yeah. against you know the way yeah, that you're yeah. feeling. And it's the same thing with the band and like the worst moments when we were just financially you know devastated, or if there were interpersonal problems or logistical problems or whatever where I was just feeling like throwing in the towel which has been probably 50,000 times you know I, I just thought about the times when we were on stage when everyone was in a good place and when the music was happening and we really felt like we were doing something specific to us yeah I don't want to say new or unique because it's like I don't know if you can do anything new or unique in mu music because everything kind of has been done but but you know something genuine. Yeah. I guess that's what you're hoping genuine, for, yeah. right? I mean, Those genuine moments. So, and I think that this group is a genuine group of people that makes genuine music that is specific to us. Yeah. You know, the sum is greater than the parts, kind of thing. And that as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's definite synergy happening. Yeah. I've always kind of said, you know, um, people ask you what kind of music do you like, and I, I'm generally like, I like all kinds of music as long as it's honest or genuine you know mm -hmm. I think people can really connect with that yeah and they can see that they can tell when it's a an honest representation of who you are sure as an artist and I think that's what generally connects people to, to the band and the artists yeah yeah I think so I think people can smell the kind of like authenticity in artists you mm -hmm. know so I, I I really think that that's initially what allowed us to kind of get over the hump of being kind of obscure and inaccessible to being like a band that you can take someone who doesn't listen to instrumental music to see and, and that they would still enjoy it. Yeah. I, I don't think when they're hearing the music, they're just processing all of the musical elements that are unfamiliar and like approving of them. I think they just see a group of people having fun playing something they believe in. Yeah. And that's kind of the most important thing. And you can see that outside of the world of music, just confidence in, in branding and confidence mm. in and marketing and selling something you see that in like you know weird products like pet rock you know which was around in the 80s and it was like how did they sell people pet rock with a lot of confidence you yeah. know what i mean <laughs> and i would hope that we have more substance than pet rock <laughs> hopefully you know 
but I think that that's important the belief in your self and your and your concept yeah cool and you know you do have a few side projects on the go or other projects as you instead of side projects would it be fair to say that snarky puppy kind of embodies you you know entirely and then like fork is maybe a, a side of you that's a bit more focused and honed you know instead of doing the, mm. the large ensemble thing fork is more like I don't want to worry about all that kind of stuff I want to get down to this element of the music no uh, no I, I would say that Snarky Puppy is just a specific thing okay and Bocante like my new band is a specific thing and fork which um, you know I've played in for a while is it's another okay. specific yeah, thing okay. you know because you can see elements of those different um, acts within Snarky Puppy as well so I was just wondering if yeah but I think you can also see especially with with Bocante you can see a lot of Snarky Puppy in Bocante and sure. it's just because that's just me okay you know yeah. but Bocante allows me to kind of access this kind of more kind of primal thing that isn't necessarily there in Snarky Puppy that's just like simpler and more like not the striking movie's not groove based sure, it's yeah, totally yeah. groove based but Bocante is like really like two chords three chords yeah. and like it's about other things Snarky Puppy you gotta have a little bit more you gotta be thinking a little bit more ahead yeah it's just more there's it's just a different I just I, it's just a different thing I sure. don't really know how to exactly be specific about it no that's cool um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the recording process for for some of the albums mm -hmm. um Having done some large ensemble projects in the past, do you ever find that the technical thing gets in the way? I mean, you've got video cameras and everybody's mic'd up and everybody's got headphones and you've got an audience. Like, is that ever, has it ever been um, a problem when you've been trying to trying to do the takes? Or, um, you know, obviously you'd, you'd want to get the most, um, the best performance at that time possible. I'm just wondering if that if that side of things has ever got in the way, or you just once it's there, you just kind of forget about it. Uh, I think the band is a live band, you know. We've done like 1,500 gigs or something, yeah. so it's like for us, we're actually just as comfortable playing for people as we are playing mm. for no people. I, I'm probably more comfortable yeah, right. playing in front of an audience, and that's kind of our dynamic. So putting the people there. It doesn't yeah I don't know, it doesn't affect us in any kind of weird way I mean you know the first album that we did like that tell your friends you know I mean we were pushing the studio to its mat to its mm -hmm. limit so there were like headphone boxes catching on fire and really I mean it, wow. you know we had to take breaks for things to cool down and so yeah that got in the way technically okay. but we got around it you yeah. know I mean no it's not we're just comfortable playing yeah. nobody has nerves ever it's like we just done it too much I think that's that's what you want yeah sure yeah. yeah I mean I think a little bit of nerves is healthy sometimes but I mean these guys it's like it's not like that at all like we don't do like a huddle before the gig we don't it's like everyone's just kind of like doing their thing and then it's like all right let's go on stage and everybody just kind of wanders it's on an, stage it's a natural and, process for you but now yeah and then it like once we start playing then it's like everybody yeah. focuses in but cool and then um culture vulture was was a pure studio album mm. so that was a different approach um what was your um, reasoning or, or thinking behind doing doing that without the the audience and, and the video cameras and stuff like that. If I want to uh, kind of sound like artistic, yep. I would say that it it was it was kind of like to recapture our essence. 
because we had just done a record with the Metropole Orchestra, right? The Symphony yeah. Orchestra. We had just done a record with a bunch of guest artists, Family Dinner Volume 2. So, you know, we, as a band, we're an instrumental original music ensemble. Yeah. You know, but one of those records was with a symphony and one was with guest singers. So it was like, you know, it had been four years or something since we had made a record that was just like only us playing our music. Yeah. So that was the idea for Culture Vulture was to kind of like make a statement about, we're not a statement, not like we were trying to prove something, but to kind of like take a snapshot of where all of our kind of, where our journey has taken us. That's the artistic standpoint. The practical standpoint is that people don't buy records anymore. Right. Which means that we don't make money. Yeah. Which means that we can't afford to make records really anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, Family Dinner 2 had a $60,000 video budget that will never pay off. <laughs> Culture Vulture cost $66,000 to make. Yeah, right. Top to bottom. Flights, yeah. studio, equipment, mixing, mastering $66,000. You know, so it's like, you know, Family Dinner 2 was four times that. Yeah, wow. You know, and <clears throat> as much success as it's had. Gentlemen yeah. of Snarky Puppy, uh, in a few minutes we will be opening the doors to the Elizabeth Murdoch Hall. If anyone needs to do any final checks or set anything on stage, please do so now. Thank you. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, you know, that Family Dinner 2, it, was well received and the videos have a lot of hits and all of our fans have heard it but if they don't buy it it doesn't enable you to then we just can't else. make any more records yeah you know like that yeah sure you know so when somebody says when's family dinner three it's like I, I, when you start buying records again then then we'll make family dinner three you know yeah. but we can't now unless spotify and pandora and youtube want to pay for all the expenses to make it which would be great yeah and they never will then we'll do it. Yeah, know. it'd be interesting if they ever went down the kind of Netflix original route of funding things to get people on board. Oh, I'm sure they would, but they wouldn't start with us. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, there there already are Apple Music exclusives and sure. stuff like that. You know yeah. that they, but it's always Drake or yep. You know, somebody who doesn't really need the help. Yeah, <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, it's a it's interesting. So that's probably part of the reason why you seem to be continually on the road is just to keep things up, keep things alive financially as well as, as artistically. Oh, absolutely. If we don't tour, we're, it's like a shark, you know, it's like if we <laughs> stop swimming, we die. Damn. Um, but to, I don't want to give the impression that touring, like... Yeah, as a means to an end, yeah. Like, right, that it's like, oh, well, if we tour, then it, then our record, the fact that people don't buy records is totally cool because we make up for it with touring. That's not the case at all. I mean, if you're, if you're lucky enough to make money touring, which most bands do not make money touring, we do um, because we're very fortunate and because we've been doing this for yeah. 14 years, yeah. you know? Um, if you are one of those bands that's fortunate enough to make money touring, the last thing you want to do is take all of your profit and sink it into making a record that no one will buy. You know, what you would like to do with that money is to pay the people who are on the tour very well exactly, and yeah. put money away to like, to improve the tour the next time, to yeah. bring in a better lighting, you know, engineer, or to bring in an additional sound engineer or to travel more comfortably or something. And, and the, the, the unfortunate reality of today is that artists are using that money from touring to kind of cover their losses mm. on the album side. And it's not a sustainable system. Yeah. You know, and it's it's a drag that pe more people don't speak up about it. But the way it's the system is operating at this point is kind of like 
perfectly stacked against small artists because streaming companies are benefiting, major labels are benefiting, and major artists are benefiting because they're getting yeah. taken care of very well by the labels and the streaming companies. Yeah. And as long as you have all of these kind of A-list artists bending their music in this way, then they're like basically labels and streaming services kind of have 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 you in a stranglehold. It's like because then if we if it like it, it's like peer pressure for you to put your stuff on there because they're like man if you're not on there you're invisible yeah which is true but you, you know <laughs> yeah. but at your own expense you know but then you weigh it up it becomes very intricate because then you weigh it up against well what's better for me to be invisible and ethical and kind of preserve my integrity mm. or like and then basically have no exposure and not be able to tour well yeah or like do kind of what we did with YouTube back before we even thought that it was, un I mean, at that moment, the fact that it was unethical didn't even occur to me. It was just like, oh my God, we can put something up online and the whole world can see it. Yeah. And what you would hope is that the people behind that curtain would say, well, we're making a lot of money off of this thanks to this content. So let's take care of the people who provide the content. No, that doesn't happen. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> it does not happen. Um, how, how would you say your your writing process has changed from you know the early albums like Bring the Bright or that kind of thing, where those ones seem to be a little bit more what you might call I don't know traditional fusion music, um, up until now where you have you know you played with a symphony orchestra um, vocalist and there's a lot, seems to be a lot more um, to use the term world music involved now. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about your how your, how your writing process has evolved and maybe what's influenced it? Yeah, sure. I think uh, there's a saxophone player from Seattle named Skerrick, really funny guy and, uh, and very smart dude. And, and he made a comment last week, we were on a gig together and he said, we play our record collections, you know? And I was thinking, wow, that's totally right. I mean, it's like, we're kind of incapable of creating sound that isn't directly related to some sound that we've heard before. Sure. You know, and I think writing, it's the same thing. It's okay. like I write my record collection. So if I'm listening to a lot of music from West Africa, I end up writing things that sound vaguely like West African music, you yeah. know, but through my own filter and with my own kind of taste, Yeah, yeah. you know, like filter, I guess is the best way to put it, you know. Spaces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it runs through, that music kind of runs through your own perception and also your own sense of authenticity because it's like, I can write something that's like derivative of a Salif Keita track mm -hmm. or a Basku Kuyate track, but like, I, I don't want to write something derivative. So I'm just gonna take elements from that thing that appeal to me and kind of do my thing yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think just, if the music compositionally is changing, it's just, based off of new things that I've heard. Yeah, you've heard, yeah. Yeah. And have, have you ever employed any, like, composition, I don't know, like, techniques? Or, or do you have any kind of advice for people who are writing in this in this idiom, in this style? Especially, like myself, a bass player. Um, would you say step away from the bass or just whatever's comfortable? Anything that's worked for you in the past to kind of, to move forward? Yeah, I think you can write a song from any angle. And from any starting point, I mean, I, I, my little trick is like, whenever I have an idea, whether it's a melody or a rhythm, even if it's just one bar, 
or you know a bass line or even just like a texture i just record it into my voice memo okay thing on my phone even if it's just a description like i want to start a song that's slow with like high flute and three-part harmony <laughs> and like a low drum sound like a zaboomba or something you know and i just say that into my phone and then when and then when i have time to write yeah. I sit down with all my voice memos and I just roll through them and whichever one Clicks. inspires me in that moment then I just proceed to write that and I don't rely on the muse to like descend yeah. in the moment that I have time it's like having a little sketchbook of ideas kind of thing that you yeah. can refer to yeah it's, I, I kind of work a little bit similarly where I have a bunch of little grooves and chord progressions and then when I want to write something I'll just flick through and go ah that makes sense now because sometimes I'm sure you know what it's like you get to a certain point and you feel a little bit stuck sure. and then you just put it on the shelf and then come back to it and go it totally makes sense now because of what I've been it's listening space. to or what I've been yeah. playing I can, can finish it off yeah totally. um, I'm curious to know what you think about the, the influence or the impact of um, gospel or, or church music um, mm. in terms of today's I guess jazz and, and, and soul scene it seems to be um, a fairly recent musical movement phenomenon that is fairly unique to, to the States. Yeah, well, I mean, gospel music is American music. Yeah. Um, as are many popular styles, mm. you know. Um, but a lot of that stuff, I think a lot of, the, you know, if you look at black American music, jazz, funk, soul, hip hop, yeah. R&B, rock and roll, um, I think the common thread with those that I just listed is that the majority of, of the people who played them grew up in the black church. Yeah, right. Okay. So I guess it's always been a, yeah. it's always been a thread. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think when you go back into like kind of blues and stuff, then it gets into kind of a fuzzy area because it's sure. so old. Yeah. But rock and roll, you know, and funk and jazz yeah. and hip hop, it's like none of those styles of music are like... Yeah, at their oldest, it's like a hundred years old, you know, with yeah. jazz and stuff, you know. But um, I mean, I yeah, I think I think it's always dangerous to make statements like this, but I, but I, I would feel pretty confident saying that like black culture has been the primary contributor to musical art forms mm. in my country. Yes. You know, because um, you you had a formative time playing in in the church. Didn't sure, you? yeah. yeah I was, when I was a in, bunch of the guys in the, in the band. Yeah, yeah. When I was in high school, I played guitar in a uh, at first First Baptist Vienna, a Black Baptist church outside of DC. And then when I went to college, uh, you know, I listened to a lot of it, but I wasn't really in the scene. And then after college, I basically just got like sucked into that scene and spent three years like kind of only playing in churches and wow. and clubs. Uh, with those musicians yeah you know so being on the secular side of the gospel scene but also being on the religious side yeah of the gospel scene you know because how, and how did those two worlds it's the same exist? yeah i mean it's i mean different intentions you know when sure. you're in the church you're playing for a different kind of purpose than when you're in a club but it's like the same musicians yeah playing similar harmonic structures and similar you know with similar aesthetics so it's like it makes sense why if you like R&B, you like gospel. I, I, I didn't really feel like I understood jazz until I started playing gospel music. Okay. And then I was kind of like, oh, right. It's the same community that kind of birthed yeah, both yeah. these forms of music, you know. 
so yeah, I think it's usually important. And now with the internet, it's like easy for anyone to go inside of a church, mm. <laughs> you know, and watch people play. You know, there's yeah. this great video of one amazing bass player named Sheree Reed playing in yeah. Chicago, oh, you know. Un unreal. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, for someone who's not an American, like yeah. if you're living in Thailand or Scotland, in, in, or Scotland <laughs> and you watch that video, it's like another world. Absolutely. You That's know what, what I mean? I like, like, you're like, but for an, for an American who, has grown up in that culture that's just normal and even for an american who like you know like me like i'm i didn't grow up in a black baptist church but yeah. like that's like a very familiar aesthetic go, oh, yeah yeah that right sense. yeah i mean yeah. the same way that like someone might be like wait you eat what in scotland you know what i mean you're like it's just haggis man relax and haggis. yeah right yeah exactly i mean to someone from another place that might be crazy mm. you know but it's just normal so um, I mean, I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah, no, I, guess, it's, it's, yeah. I guess what the short answer would be that if you're, if you're already familiar with music that is derived from gospel music or that was birthed by the same community, yeah. it makes sense that you're going to be attracted to that music. Sure, it's yeah. just, it's just a relative. Yeah. Um, and I think actually Cherie is coming out in a couple of months with Corey. With Corey yeah. yeah. So we'll come and do some shows here, which should be fun to check yeah. out. Cool. Um, we could talk a little bit about gear. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think last time I saw you, you had a 50s P bass. That's the same one, yeah. Yeah, is it an original? Yeah, it's a 59. 59 All P original, bass. yeah. Yeah, well, how, how did you come up with that? Uh, I just searched kind of relentlessly for months because yeah. I knew I wanted like a 58 or 59 with a maple neck, you know? And um, I, I found one. <laughs> online and I and I called the guy and I said hey man I can't come to Ohio or wherever the base was um, did you know who you were no no and and I was like can can you just like can I pay you and then you send it to me and then if I don't like it I can return it for a refund and he said yeah sure he's like I don't think you're gonna be asking for a refund and I was like okay cool and he sent it to me and I just played it in the hotel room and I was like done yeah it was exactly it was it it's it's yeah my favorite instrument i think i've ever played wow yeah i mean you, i've you're kind of fairly synonymous with the p bass um is that a choice i've written down here um because of its limitations or in spite of its limitations in quotes you know in this in this role it's you know a 59 p bass is somewhat of a wieldly <coughs> instrument to get around and everybody talks about how you know when you play p bass you play a little bit different from how you would in a jazz totally. because of the physicality of it so i'm just wondering if that's it obviously has been a conscious decision but you know how how has that evolved throughout the years in terms of you could play anything but you kind of see, seem to keep on coming back to the to the p yeah, I mean, the way that I fell in love with beat basses is that I was playing like a four-string Ken Smith or something. I might have been the only four-string Ken Smith owner in the world. And <laughs> probably almost as hard to find as a 59 beat bass. Yeah, I think it's harder. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and Tim LaFave was playing in this band called Rudder. Mm. And they were headlining this show in Dallas and Snarky Bobby was opening and my bass's electronics like went out right before the gig and so Tim said you can play my P bass. Gentlemen of Snarky Puppy, the doors to the Elizabeth Murdoch Hall are now open. The time is 3.41. Thank you. Awesome service. That's great. Wonderful. <laughs> so considerate. Um, 
So, so yeah, so my, 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 my electronics went out. Tim said, you can play my P bass. I said, great, sure. So I picked it up and it was like, you know, the action was like this high off yeah. the fingerboard and it was heavy flat wounds. And I was like, man, I can't play any of my shit on this bass. So I played this gig playing like one quarter of the notes <laughs> that I normally play. Yeah. And we were all, I think the whole band was like, wow, this band sounds a lot better now. <laughs> you know, like once I just like cut out all the bullshit I was playing, then it was like, yeah, it felt right. good. And with an instrument like that, you feel more like a percussionist. The P bass filler. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, you know, because you're not doing all this stuff, it's more just kind of like playing the rhythm. It's like literally like rhythm section. Yeah. You know, and then that kind of made me fall in love with the whole culture of, P bass playing and supportive bass playing and yeah. um, which I already was in love with, but I wasn't playing that way. Sure, yeah. And so the next week, man, I like started looking for P basses and I found one in a pawn shop in South Carolina for like six, seven hundred dollars, like a seventies P bass, and it was in bad shape. But I bought yeah. it and fixed it up, and and I, I mean, for me, that's just the sound that I hear in my head when I play bass. It's like that sound. Exactly. Yeah, I think a lot of people when the when you envision a bass is going to be either a jazz sound or a P sound kind of thing. And I know a lot of people have kind of went for like a, a custom instrument, a jazz style custom instrument, but it never ends up sounding like what they expect a bass to sound like mm. because it's, you know, totally different yeah. combination from, from what we expect anyway. But yeah, so the P bass and then when did the, the mono, the, you know, the synth bass stuff start happening? That was just because of, you know, playing so many gigs in Dallas. Like, there's just these unbelievable key bass players. Right, okay. You know, my mentor, Bernard Wright, um, you know, used to play only key bass for the Winans, I think it was. You know, I mean, it, it's like... Is that, and is that a, is that from the gospel? Yeah. Ah, okay. So and, yeah. and then there's like, you know, Bobby Sparks and Sean Martin who are playing tonight, yeah. you know. These guys are unbelievable key bass players. Bobby might be, you know, like the, my favorite bass instrument player in the world yeah right you know if if i was gonna die and i had to pass over the bass keys to anybody i would just give them to bobby and say just play moog bass on on everything and in starkey puppy you know i mean he's cool. he's insane so you know once that sound got in my head i was like trying to get it with the bass with octave pedals and it's just not the same you know it's a different thing that's very cool but it's not the same so i was like well i guess i should just Gotta get one of them. Gotta get one of those, <laughs> yeah. It just starts growing and growing. Um, and you've been with Mark, Mark Bass for a while? Yeah, it was the first company that I ever endorsed. And, <clears throat> um, still with them, it's been like 10 years, 11 years. Yeah, right. And a new signature amp, is that right? That's right. Yeah. What's, um, yeah. what's the magic sauce in that? Man, it's just like, a, I, I really love it. Yeah, it's you, like- You playing one tonight? No, they're not available really yeah. yet. That's they're just like kind of prototypes but um yeah it's called the casa it's like a um old school solid state like just like old school rhythm machine it's like a bass that, it's like an amp you plug into and put everything at 12 and you play and it's like i don't need to touch anything. so there's no valves in it no so it's maybe like a gk 800 rb kind of thing no it's much much more like old school it's it's weird, yeah. It's weird. It actually sounds more like an SVT. Yeah. Even though SVTs are all tube, like it. That's cool. It sounds 
I don't know why. I don't. I mean, those guys are magicians, you know, the Mark Base <laughs> yeah. people, you know. Um, but it's really like meat and potatoes, like deep, but like with a just a really warm, punchy mid range. Yeah. It's like it's just warm. It's like warm and and old school and awesome. I love. Yeah, I love. Sounds it. good. And you're um, as well as the you know the, the Fender P. You're playing some Mulons, is that right? I have a Mulan. You have an a Mulan? Yeah. yeah, that's like, I think it's the only one of its kind. Was that Tim LaFave inspiration as well or, or a separate? It's, you know, it's funny. It's Henry Hay, who okay. was the keyboard player in Rudder and is the keyboard player in Fork. So he was in Rudder with Tim. They're yeah. like really good friends. And I think maybe Henry is the, I don't know if Henry turned Tim on to Mulan or if Tim turned Henry on to Mulan, but Henry became good friends with Young June, who's the guy who runs it. Yeah. And, they and he just he gave me a bass at Nam this year. This crazy like semi hollow body P with a Telecaster neck. It's like a really interesting looking cool. bass. It sounds really good. Um, you know, for certain things, it's like cooler than anything that I've heard actually. Yeah. So it's kind of semi hollow body. Yeah, it's got an interesting sound. I mean, I wouldn't call it like an all purpose bass, but it, it's great. You know. Yeah. I mean, that's. You know, I also have two or well, three, four. Really beautiful instruments from F bass, like a fretless, yeah, good, yeah. a five string, and two four strings that are like amazing. They kind of combined all my favorite um, dimensions and stuff. Uh, yeah, from different years of Fender basses. So I was like, oh, I love the neck wow. on a 52, I love the pickup placement on a 59, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of built cool two basses like that, which are like awesome. P's or PJs? PJs. PJs, yeah. Um, those are wonderful. You know, I have an old Hoffner from the 60s that I love. I have like a 52 P bass, like a telly kind of style, you know. So, I mean, I think I have ukulele, you know, Kala ukulele basses, I have three of, it's like, it sounds like a lot, I mean, it's a lot of instruments, but it's like, but each one really has its own sound, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like, depending on what you're playing, it's like, a J just doesn't work on Exactly, and that's how we justify our collections. Yes, exactly. They sound different. You got, you bought another one, but it's different, but it looks the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's what's next? What's happening next for for you and, and Snarky Puppy? Are there any collaborations coming up? Or I know you've got this tour for what three or four months. Yeah, this is two months, uh, seventy days, so a little over. Okay. Two, eight eight weeks basically. Around the world. Around the world, yeah. Cool. New Zealand, Australia, Japan, Europe, U.S. Um, only a couple of U.S. dates. Um, and then after that, I have like five days off, and then Bocante, which is my new band that I'm playing baritone guitar in. Yeah. It's like three guitars, lap steel, three percussion, a rotating bass player, actually, so it's different every tour, and a singer. Yeah, right, because when you were here in, in, in Adelaide, I saw Paul Bender jumped up and played with you from, from Hiatus. Hiatus Coyote, that's, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he'll be here tonight. He's, yeah, he's a, uh, such a dude. Yeah. So. Paul played, yeah, Jonathan Marin played a couple gigs. Jay White is going to be playing this amazing bass player um, and singer. So, yeah, it's kind of an opportunity for me to play with different bass players, which is really exciting. Mm. You know, I talked to Lee Sklar about doing some dates and like, you know, no I would love to have like Victor Wooten come and play P-Bass. Just yeah. like play Just Groove. Oh, that would be insane. You know, I mean, like, I think it would be really cool to like, you know, LaFave, I'll talk to LaFave. Just to get all my favorite bass players in there at some point, and um, yeah, cool. For me, it's fun playing baritone guitar. I love that instrument, and you know, it's so that's cool. So Bocante is the name of the band, and we're releasing our first record, which is called Strange Circles. 
the beginning of June, and then we're touring June and July, US, Canada, and European jazz festivals, yep. two months. Sweet. And then South America in August. So it's, you know, it's kind of like having two children now. Yeah. You know, because you, you gotta love equally. Gotta love them equally. Even though you always have a favorite, you say you love them equally. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Yeah, true. Well, I reckon um, we'll wrap it up there because you've got to cool. get ready for the show. But thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah, Craig. Thanks, That was man. awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Guys, thanks for watching. Um, thanks for listening. And we'll see you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>